Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. This is episode six. I'm going to be your host, Jamar. And today we are interviewing Rachel G. So, hello, Rachel. How are you today? I'm fine. Um, sitting here in Oklahoma, just dealing with the heat. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. So, it's a hot day out there in Oklahoma. Pretty much so. So, my cat and I are sitting here. She, she want, seems to want to join this. All right. So, today we're going to be interviewing Rachel, and Rachel has a gambling addiction. So a little different than what we've been used to as far as talking. And so I guess, Rachel, tell us, tell us your story, maybe a little bit about your childhood. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Oklahoma and I was adopted. Um, I was not my mother's husband's child. So she was married, but she had an affair. And so she put me up for adoption. And her husband said she could come back if I didn't come with her. So everyone was told I was stillborn. Uh, she never saw me. She had said uh, she would if I didn't look Indian, but they told her I had dark hair, so she never came in to see me. Um, which is, you know, not the best thing, but I understand she was in quite a quandary and that's what happened. I was in foster care for about 10 months. Um, my understanding, not the best quality, but uh, fortunately at 10 months I was adopted by a very loving family. Uh, my adopted mother had asked for native children and I'm native and she was Cherokee. So I was actually raised um, for most of my life thinking I was Cherokee because she wanted my sister and I to think that we were closer to her, I guess. So I was, I'm actually um, more, much more Pawnee, but I was raised in a Cherokee household. All right, so I actually had a question. You said you were raised in a Cherokee household, but you're actually more Pawnee. What is there a major difference between the two tribes for someone like me that, that is very, I guess the word would be ignorant to that information. I don't know. No, that's fine. There's many tribes in Oklahoma, um, because this is where, um, all of the, the removal ended for, you know, lots and lots of tribes. Uh, this is Indian territory. So um, Cherokee is part of the five civilized tribes, which means that they had already had quite a bit of contact with the Europeans and had taken up farming, had taken up building houses, had a system of government, had something, you know, like a newspaper in print, were wearing more European-style fashion. Um, On the other hand, Pawnee... Um, is more from uh, the Nebraska area and um, was not, had not had as much contact or um, was still um, hunting and gathering 
and you know, uh, so it's a it's a little different. Um, uh, don't know how to explain it all in one one shot here, but um, probably I, I laughingly at times say we're the bad guys in the movies, you know, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, so it was kind of a shock to find out that I'm much more Pawnee. But when I went to Pawnee days and looked at the women, I went, "Oh yeah, this is where I belong." I I never was looked like Cherokee women. Okay. So you found out that it was around your uh, teenage years. Um, when I was going to college, I did get a letter that said there might be more than one tribe but it didn't that's all it said and so my mom said now you're Cherokee and I went okay you know at the time I didn't have a reason not to believe her um honestly I was oh gosh I think it was 2000 Ten, twelve, somewhere in there, that I actually found out what tribe it was. And 2015, before I actually got my DHS files and my um, all of my adoption files opened and my birth certificate, and actually realized that um, I was really much more pawn. I'm half Pawnee, um, so. It was a lot later in life. Okay. How were your teenage years? Was it good life, bad life? Anything that you think was uh, looking back, heading uh, your direction towards addiction? Not so much in my teenage years. Actually, um, I will say my teenage years are possibly even the most stable. We actually stayed in a house for four years. My mother was a real estate broker. She bought houses, fixed them up, and sold them at a profit. So when I was 30, I was on my 30th move. But from 7th grade to 11th grade, we actually lived in the country, and we actually stayed in one house. And it was out in the country, so um, it was a little more isolated. Um, typical, you know, teenage fights with mom, um, you know, but overall things were things were fine. Average students. Um, I now I will say my senior year we moved into Tulsa, which and I ended up graduating from a suburb, and so I was driving back out there, and I learned that you know basically you don't really have to go to school. <laughs> That there's not really that much they can do to you. And so I missed a lot of my senior year of high school. Um, but not for anything wild. I actually went to work. I was kind of like, I could actually go make money instead of going and sitting in class. And I'd much rather go make money. So uh, I had a boss that would call in for me and I'd, I'd go work. Um, I don't know how I passed my senior year, you know. I think people just took pity on me and gave me grades. I don't know. But I did graduate. And um, 
then I, I will say from 18 until 30, I did do a fair amount of drinking. Um, I did my college drinking. I probably did other people's as well. Hmm. And, you know, uh, so that was kind of the first sign of addiction was, you know, um, I, I don't know why, well, um, it, you know, that that was something that started and but I think that just starts for a lot of students when they when they go off to college and definitely for me which explains my undergraduate GPA um, but I um, graduated from college I moved to Corpus Christi and I started working um, actually at first for Slotsky's because I, I managed it because I worked there through college and then I got a job with Corpus Christi uh, schools and I taught there. I met my husband in Corpus Christi and interestingly enough he was an addict. I didn't know it. I'm apparently quite naive. He was actually an IV drug user and I knew him for three months before I someone actually had to tell me. I didn't figure it out on my own. He went into treatment, and he went one time and never used again, and that was like 40 years ago, so he doesn't understand why everyone just doesn't go once and get over this stuff. Were you, um, used, were you still using it? Were you still drinking heavily? Like, once you left college, did the drinking slow down a little bit, or did you continue, like, at the same pace? I continued at the same pace for a few years, and then once I started drinking, I did just drink on weekends. Um, and then um, I was kind of getting the point that my body was saying, uh, this sucks, we don't like those hangovers, we don't want to do this anymore. And as it happened, that was about the same time I met my husband, and he went into recovery. And it just kind of naturally evolved that I just stopped drinking, and we just, you know, went on as a sober couple. Um, so I don't know why alcohol didn't, quote, get me, um, because, you know, I definitely drank a lot in college, but it was something that, you know, I may have a drink two or three times a year and I'll never have a second one. Um, I just kind of have one and go, well, that was interesting. And then that's it. Don't know why it didn't get me. Um, so. Yeah, that's, uh, you're lucky for that. Weird. You're lucky for that. Cause that's one of the things I've noticed is, you know, you've been to some of our meetings. A lot of people just transfer their addiction immediately. It's not like they can stop for a while. It's like, for me, the second I was done with pills, it was only because I had alcohol. Like, right. I, I would have never stopped the pills. There was no saying, okay, I'm just not going to do anything, unfortunately. But it is weird for you because I figured maybe having the addictive personality, like you said, that would have been an issue. But I thought that it would be as well, and it, and it was not. Um, in fact, when I was teaching in Corpus Christi, and this will show my age, 
there was a teacher's lounge that was non-smoking and one that was smoking. Hmm. And there were much more fun people at the smoking in the smoking lounge. So I smoked a pack of cigarettes a month. I smoked one cigarette sitting with those ladies and gentlemen at Monday through Friday at the teacher's lounge and never smoked on weekends, never smoked in the summers. And once I left there, I never smoked again. So why didn't smoking get me? Why didn't alcohol get me? I don't know. And nicotine's a big one. Nicotine is a big one. I agree. I agree. And I've seen lots of people that have stopped many other drugs and are still trying to quit smoking. I don't know why that happened. And at this point in time, I was not, I, gambling was the furthest thing from my mind. I had um, a student in the eighth grade that wanted to bet me a dime that he could do. I don't even remember what it was that he said that he could do. And I said, I don't bet. And he said, it's a dime. And I went, no, I don't bet. I work too hard for my money. I don't bet. And he was like, oh, okay. You know, and that was really actually absolutely my attitude for many, many, many years. Uh, so what I made that change? When, when you, would you consider that your first bet? Would I consider that my first bet? Like, did you get a high I, off of it when you bet that dime? Was there anything there? No, I, I, I refused to bet him. Oh, that's right. You didn't even do, do it, it at all. Apologies. I thought you said you had done it. No, I refused. And he he thought I was just the strangest person. Um, and I guess it would be strange. Um, what I could say that my... Uh, I, I, as we get to it later, I really didn't think that I had done any gambling whatsoever through these years. One thing that came out when I was in treatment that I never thought about was things like, you know, the game where there's a bunch of quarters lying and it's moving back and forth and you put a quarter in the back to try to get quarters to come out at the bottom. And I never thought about that as betting, but it was pointed out to me that yeah, you're putting money in, you're taking a chance on something. And especially if you stay at it and you keep going and keep going. Um, you know, I, I was taking kids to an arcade. I wasn't thinking about it as betting. But it, I I guess I have to accept that it, it was. Um, probably wasn't, you know, something I was going to do the rest of my life, but it was taking a chance on something and with a monetary value so definitely um so i guess betting you know can be in other places that we might not even realize yeah that's a good point i never i would never even think about that so i i hadn't either because when i walked into treatment the first time i said I, I never bet before 2003 and they started naming things i said no nope, never did it no nope, never did it and then they got to that and i went Oh, I never thought of that. So there you go. So um, when was so at first you didn't think so in two thousand three the first time you quote unquote thought that was your first time gambling. What was the what was the bet or where did you go? What happened on that incident? In two 
2003, I went with a friend of mine to pick up someone, a friend of hers at Tunica, and we went and spent the night. And in the morning, I took $20 down and I uh, played a quarter machine and pretty much took all my money. And then I hit something. I don't even know what. And it gave me back $12. I bought a t-shirt and went, boy, that was stupid and left and thought, I don't know why people do this. Um, and so it was probably six months later that we had another girls trip and we went to um, Center City in Colorado and I sat down and played a nickel machine. So all of a whole quarter of a bet. And I was playing um, poker video poker and I hit a royal flush now since I was playing so low it wasn't that much money but it was you know enough that I was like because I had looked at a pair of shoes earlier in the day and went oh they're a little too expensive for me and then I won the money and went oh I can go buy that pair of shoes now that's pretty cool um that was kind of fun and uh it went from there to uh, one of the friends that was with me actually lived in the same town with me and we got to where we would go together and we would go play. Um, at one point it was like one o'clock in the morning and she was still playing and I was like, how can you still be playing? I just, I don't even understand this. And, uh, I, after that took my own car, uh, because I was like, <laughs> I'll never play until one o'clock in the morning. That's, that's crazy. And of course, you know, you have to eat all your words because I could play, I could play all night long. Maybe, you know, get to more than that. So it at first was social and it was not much of losing money. It was, and I had, um, divorced, uh, and was, had my son every other week and so the weeks that I didn't have him I would go play at the casino and you know just kind of kill time and, and that was fun and and the weeks I had him I didn't play uh, that kind of went on for a while and then it got to where I was just going on my own and then I started dating and um I dated two men after my uh, marriage. Both men died of prostate cancer. Oh, wow. And both of them, I was involved in um, taking care of them and get going through this period of time. And at the same time, my mother also, she had a stroke at 91. And so I was also trying to spend time with my mother and help her. Um, so there was a lot going on around me and gambling was where I escaped. Um, if I went and spent four hours with my mom, then I would gamble on my way home. I would stop. That was my reward. Um, and I didn't have to think about 
anyone dying. I didn't think I had to think about changing any diapers. I didn't have to um, think about, are they getting the right medications? You know, I could just go in, escape, not have to talk to anybody, and just sit and play a machine. See, I never thought of that. I never would think that a gambler is using their addiction to numb themselves. I thought it was maybe a different type of high, but I'm assuming there are other highs involved, but I never thought about that. I never thought that you're, like you said, no one's dying, you're numbing yourself out. Um, That's interesting. Well, there's two types of gamblers. There's action gamblers and there's escape gamblers. I'm definitely the escape gambler. The action gamblers go in and they're, um, you know, they want people to watch them and they, they want to, you know, bet high and they're the ones you'll hear yelling. Again, but that's, like I said, that's really interesting because I never thought of the numbing effect, so to speak. I thought it would just be for the action. Well, there is a numbing effect, but there is also the dopamine effect that is going on in the brain just like when you're doing drugs and alcohol. So you are also getting something that makes you feel a little bit better. Do you, because um, I know they pretty much serve it for free everywhere. Do you, were, you, were you drinking at the same time? Did, it have, what, did you have anything influencing your gambling or what, did you do it with a straight head? I was stupid enough to do it with a straight head. Um, I was not drinking. Uh, the town where I lived had two casinos not one casino was 18 and above so they did not serve alcohol the other casino was too close to a school to, to they could they could let you gamble but they could not serve alcohol interesting so um so and of course they were both tribal casinos because there's hundreds and hundreds of tribal casinos in Oklahoma. Really? That was another thing I was going to mention. It, it sounds like, for some reason, people, I think, automatically think of Las Vegas when you think of gambling. So to, mm-hmm. to think of Oklahoma as a place where there's casinos everywhere, for me at least, I didn't really think of that. Oh, they are. They are absolutely everywhere. My understanding is that as a state, we're second in the number of slot machines, only to us, only to Nevada. Yeah. Um, there are, let's see, and there's three casinos here in Tulsa, big ones, Hard Rock and River Spirit and Osage. And they're, they're large casinos um, with motels attached and the whole, whole shebang. Huh. I've never been to Vegas. Probably never will, you know. Not, not really a reason to to try to do that now. I think I, that's probably best uh, something I never do. All right. So, did you go to the casinos alone, or were you always with somebody? Um, was that something where you were just like maybe towards the end you started going alone more? How did that work? Oh, uh, I would say within a year I was going alone. And going often on my own. I happened to have a schedule that was somewhat flexible. And I met all my work obligations. 
but I still was, you know, managing a fair amount of casino time every week. And, of course, the amounts of money that I was betting was going up and up and up. And I was getting all sorts of payday loans and, you know, all sorts of uh, online loans and, you know, with astronomical interest rates and, you know, using bill money to play and uh, then having to figure out how in the world I was going to cover bills. Uh, yes, for me, it progressed pretty quickly. Within a year, I was, I was doing some good damage. So I took a year off. I just decided, I think it was like an April 5th one year, and I said, well, I'm gonna, it's, I, it's a money problem. I'm just taking a year off, and I'm going to get my finances together. And I did but April 5th of next year, I was back in the casino. Um, you know, I, that, was, that was my goal. I made my goal. I'm back. And, of course, when I went back, I didn't start again on anything that was, you know, playing for small amounts of money. I went back and started exactly where I'd left off, playing higher amounts and then higher amounts. And, you know, playing all night long, um, playing when I could feel my blood pressure going up, but I was still going to sit there and play. Um, you know, I actually had a big fear that I, you know, would fall over and, and, and keel over at, at a casino, you know, and, uh, you know, I, how would I ever explain that? Because no one knew I was doing this, you know. Uh, so it was very secretive, even very, even very in the beginning. Secretive. So in the beginning, it was very secretive, also. At the very very beginning, um, I would tell people I'm going to casino, but once I started going on my own, no, I I didn't tell anyone anymore. I just went and did it by myself, and um, I stopped the second time. <laughs> I was at the casino at 1.30 in the morning and I had a student recognize me come and I was mortified and so I took uh, 90 days off that time and moved to a different casino. Huh. <laughs> that would solve it all uh, because I have banned myself when I was living in Tahlequah, I banned myself from both casinos. And um, the problem was it still didn't stop me from going there. In fact, I did get caught. Um, I, they came over, and I knew what they were doing. They were looking, and they called me by name. And I go by my middle name, so if they're calling me by my first name, I, I know what's going on. And I got walked back to security, and they were much too nice. They uh, had me sign that I knew I was on tribal grounds um, when I was excluded with a self-ban, and that if it happened again, I would be arrested. They cashed out my tickets, which they shouldn't have done, and gave me the money that I had, and escorted me off property and uh, 
you know, that should have been enough, but no, um, you know, it doesn't. Banning myself doesn't make a difference to me. So, I'll still go. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go. So you can ban yourself from a casino. Mm-hmm. And they'll arrest Yes, you can. And they'll arrest you. Uh, they can. Yes. Wow. This particular, this was the Cherokee Nation Casino, and they could have, Cherokee Nation uh, Marshal Service could have arrested me could have put me in jail and I would have gone to court within Cherokee Nation and they would have determined what what the penalty was. Um, they did not, but they could have. So that's something interesting. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people don't don't know this stuff. So how, well, how old were you at this time? Let's see. I was in my 50s. Okay. Um, yeah, and um, so I started, of course, realizing this is a problem. Um, I had loans out everywhere. I I owed, um, you know, I didn't owe individual people at that point in time, but, you know, people knew that Rachel doesn't really have money to go to lunch, so if you invite her, you'll probably have to pay for her, you know, and... <laughs> You know, that's kind of kind of sad. Um, and in fact, uh, my son did not. It was probably the only one that knew that I gambled. And by this point in time, he was nineteen, and he was living with me and going to college. But there were times that I didn't have food in the house. And I just had to tell him I'm sorry. Um, I have made amends to him about that. And he has been gracious enough to say, Mom, it's fine. But, you know, as a mom, you're supposed to be the one that, you know, is the role model. And I obviously was not. So um, I applied to go treatment um what made you seek that when you went so you so you basically finally realized that you had a problem you've been going through all this was there a motivation that something specific happened like was it after you realized you had no food for your son or was it like something else that actually happened like an event that said okay i can't handle myself anymore i need professional help i was um there are gambling hangovers and I was having horrible gambling hangovers. You know, if you've been sitting and staring at something that's flashing at you for hours and hours and hours and hours, and you've been drinking diet pop all night, which is horrible on your stomach and losing and winning and then giving it all back and losing anyway. Um, you know, you start to drive home. I had times I would drive me driving and just think I should just drive off the road. I should just hit that tree. This is not a life. Um, I had a lot of suicide ideation. I, I guess I am blessed that I did not act upon it, but I just had so much anger 
against myself for the life I was living and the fact that I was not able to um, be the role model for my son and you know so I was talking with a counselor at the time because of course I was depressed how could I not be depressed during this time yeah and I applied to get help to go to inpatient treatment. Um, I actually was denied the first time. Uh, I was fortunate that I finally found some resources. Um, there's a gentleman in Oklahoma named Wiley Hartwell, and he is in charge of Oklahoma Problem and Compulsive Gambling. He also, you know, is linked up with every other state that has someone in charge of that. And um, I contacted him. He did not have the money to send me at that point in time, but he thought he would soon. Because every tribe is required to send us, I want to say it's about 2%, I don't know the exact number, to Oklahoma Problem and Compulsive Gambling to help people that actually get addicted. It was, you know, a system put in place by the state. So he, a couple of weeks later, contacted me that he did have enough money to send me. Uh, it was $6,000 to send me to CORE at Shreveport, Louisiana. And so I had to get ready to do that. Um, Fortunately, it was the summer since I teach. I No one was, you know, there wasn't a lot of people questioning. But I did go ahead and tell my boss. And I told my son. I told my family. And over and over again, I got the response of, oh, boy, you hid that well. Um, you know, I had been very secretive, and most people had no earthly idea except I knew that things were spiraling down very, very quickly. Um, I went to CORE, which was a wonderful treatment center. It's very structured. It is a house, and ironically, uh, its address is on Stoner Drive in Shreveport, Louisiana. <laughs> And, of course, once you go there, I mean, I was not prepared for them to go through every inch of my uh, suitcase, my purse, uh, everything. They took everything apart. Yeah, they did that to me, too. I got there at 1.30 in the morning. And, um, they, you know, they took all my money and all my debit cards and my phone and I knew they I knew they were going to do that but I didn't expect this thorough search and I was then placed on the women's side and at that point in time there were 12 beds with every two beds there's a, a partition between them but it doesn't go up to the ceiling it's a half partition and there were some lockers and then you, you know, you were just allowed four or five changes of clothes, and that was it. Um, 
end of story. I had some crackers with me and I had a book with me and both of those were taken and I didn't get them back until I left. I was like, what am I going to do with crackers? But, oh well. Uh, very regimented. In the mornings, um, I got up at 530 uh, because with 12 women tried to use two showers, you better be up early. We had to be at breakfast, whether we were going to eat or not. That was at 7. And, and after that, we had chores. And then after that, we had an educational time with counselors. Then after that, um, we had uh, we broke into two groups. And that was our smaller group sessions where it went round and round. They focused on individuals. Uh, lunch. Then you went back and did more of this. And then in the afternoons, we were given assignments. The first one being you have to write an autobiography. And you had a week to do that, and then you had to present it to the group. Uh, and then in the evenings, we went to GA meetings every night, except one night we went to an AA meeting. Um, and so if you left property, you were kicked out. If you... Try we were next door to Domino's. If you tried to eat food outside of the, the house, you were kicked out. If you had a glass of water in your room at night, you were kicked out because there was no food or drink allowed in the dorm areas. So they were there very was, Why were they so they were, strict? They were this strict, one, because for Louisiana residents, they're free. When they brought in gambling... They were wise enough to state, okay, we're going to have recovery centers for Louisiana residents, and it's going to be free. Uh, so they did have people that would come in that would bring, try to bring drugs or alcohol is probably the most common thing that they were looking for, I'm sure. And so, you know, they were very, very strict because they they would not want you to have access to anything. You know, you gave them all of your medications and you you went and picked them up each day and they watched you take them. Now, this makes it sound like a horrible place, but it is called a house of miracles and it really is. You get closer to people that are dealing with the same thing that you're dealing with than you ever will in your whole entire life. And they have a very strong Gambus Anonymous and uh, Gammonon for families in Shreveport. So you're getting a lot of good educational information and a lot of support uh, while you're there. And they're great people. I can't say enough about how wonderful it is. It's just as an adult, you have to accept the fact that of your own money, you're only going to be given $5 a week and the pot machine's $1.50, so you're going to have to figure that out. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> they even prepared our food. We, we did not buy our own food. Uh, it was prepared for us, and you ate what was prepared. Now, it was good food. I will say that that's uh, good. They had a, you know, that was a good situation. But you, you did not, you know. And then there were phone times during the day. 
So I went there and I spent 36 days. Now it's a 28 day program, but back then it was 36 days. And I came home and I didn't gamble for a year and a half. In fact, I started Gamblers Anonymous in my small town. Unfortunately, in a year's time, I only had five people ever come, and that was not at the same time, so most of the time I was just sitting there by myself. And after a year, I gave it up, and within a short period of time, you know, I went back out myself. So, so when you went back out, what would, how, how does it feel when you gamble? Like, what's the feeling? Like... Just to give me an idea, for for me, at first, when I when I made the decision I was going to use, I felt safe. I was like, okay, I felt better. And then on the way to getting it, I felt a different kind of high, so to speak. And once I had it in my hands, I felt, like I said before, even more safe. What was it like, your feeling leading up to the actual bet, and what goes through your mind? It's a good question. You have a lot of gambling fantasies because you see the possibilities, even if you haven't hit big um, or if you have, you see the possibilities. And so in your head, you're starting to think, well, I could go do this and I, I could win that amount of money. And, you know, and then you start feeling very philanthropic uh, in your in your fantasy of and then I I could help this person and I could help that person and and I could you know buy a new car and you know um, you start you know thinking about well if I just went and did this you know the right way you know so you do you get a lot of fantasies of the possibilities and you know, if you don't think it through to the end, that's where you stop. And that's pretty much what takes me back is if I get stuck in the what ifs, you know, I I could do this and I could do that and I'm going to win and that's, you know, it's going to be great. Because walking into a casino, for me, the possibilities just are a high. They are, you know, now, once again, I will say that I started as escape. I never got to the point that I wanted people watching me play, but I was betting higher and higher. And it was a high to walk into the casino because it was like, look at all these possibilities. What am I going to do first? You know, now I never played tables. For some reason, tables scared me. I didn't know how to do it, and uh, so I stayed with slots. So, you know, it was like, look at all these possible slot machines. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what I could, you know, what I could do. And it's craziness. Money has no real value. It's like you're playing Monopoly money when you're at a casino. And people that gamble will tell you. When you run out of money, you just wait until midnight because, of course, then you can get more money out of the ATM. And, of course, you also know how to get money off your credit cards and 
if they'll take a check, you know, you, you do all those things because when you're there, money has no value. Now, I might be someplace and go, oh, I'm not going to buy that. That's 20 bucks. That's too much. And yet I'd put 100 in a machine and it could be gone in five minutes or less because it has, it's, it's not real when I'm there. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And yeah, yes, it does. That's something I find very interesting. But just um, the way you described all the possibilities and how you could help people. It's funny because that, that hit a chord with me. Because I remember one time I was in New York where I used to work, New York City. And in our building was like this little little shop. It just sold lottery tickets, cigarettes, coffee, okay. stuff like that. And I hit like 20 times in a row. It was for small stuff. You know what I mean? and I just kept buying more tickets and I remember thinking what you're thinking what you just said I remember thinking of all the possibilities of how I could pay people back and how I can get back on my feet help my mom right yep I I totally remember doing all of everything you pretty much mentioned Um, because I'm an addict that's (laughs) That's what I think. I understand that, and and it absolutely, you know, is it is so completely addictive, and um, unfortunately, because we start thinking these things, we bet higher and higher, and it's also one of the reasons that you know the suicide rate is so high among compulsive gamblers. Um, and I understand that because I had so much suicidal ideation. So it leads you um, to that point. It leads- and I had no people that made attempts. I mean, people that, you know, made drastic attempts that are surprised they're still here. All from gambling. That's. Yeah, because I was not coming home to someone that was questioning where I'd been or looking at my bank account and seeing what I'd done. Um, So I internalized everything and it went into a deeper and deeper depression. But I know a lot of people that are in couples that, uh, you know, have to go, I've got to go home and, you know, how am I ever going to explain that I lost $5,000 tonight? How can I tell my husband that he's he's going to leave? You know, um, I've known people that um, have gone to prison. Um, I still have a good friend that spent three years in prison because he embezzled one point eight million dollars from Tulsa Better Business Bureau, and at the time he was an Oklahoma state representative. Um, and so he was very high profile and um, embezzled all this money and ended up in prison for three years and has been out, I think, two years now. Very, very nice man. He Extremely did, nice man. And he did it all so he can gamble it away. Yes, and he did go to Vegas. He was used to flying and doing speaking engagements around the nation. And 
I guess once you go to Vegas, they send you lots of enticements to come back again. Um, our casinos do that too, but you know, it's not anything apparently to compare to you know, what Vegas might send you and say, you've got all this money sitting here for free for you to play, come back. And he did, but it wasn't with his money. I have a wonderful friend that um, she worked in the district attorney's office in her small town and embezzled um, about $70,000 out of the district attorney's office. So, of course, when she got arrested, <laughs> everybody knew. Um, now, she was able to keep out of prison by refinancing her house. But her husband had to agree to that, and that agreement included inpatient treatment. So they are now doing very, very well. And actually, neither one of them have ever gambled again. Um, I'm the one that is hard-headed, and it took longer to get it into my head because I relapsed a number of times. I ended up um, going to Algamas, which is in Prescott, Arizona. It is also for gambling because I was looking for places that weren't doing drugs and alcohol and just throwing gambling in there. Was this I meetings? Wanted... Were, were these meetings or an actual rehab facility? This was a rehab facility. So it was a rehab facility specifically for gambling? Absolutely. Okay. And there's not many of them, but there's there's starting to be more. Um Core is one, and Algamas is another one in Prescott, Arizona. And I went there for 30 days. Um, it's a more relaxed program in that you have more freedom. As women, we were in apartments, um, still on property, but we were in apartments and got to have television. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, uh, <clears throat> and we could walk to the Circle K and actually get a pop if we wanted to. It was not a big deal. Um, but it's also still structured the same way. You have your educational meetings. You have your, your group where you're going through and you're discussing your losses, discussing your autobiography, discussing your triggers, um, you know, learning about how it's affecting your brain and, you know, you're doing all of those things and also getting support from other people that are gambling. Um, <clears throat> you know, and there at Alchemist, I met people that, you know, had lost their whole 401k, you know, had $150,000 in it and it's gone. Um, I met a guy that lost quarter of a million dollars on two hands of blackjack in less than five minutes oh, uh, and uh, but he was unique um, he had like helicopters coming to get him and they held tables for him and uh, things that I never had even envisioned but at the same place was also a gentleman that was there for scratchers um, I guess in California, you can buy high dollar scratchers um, and you could win a million or 10 million. I don't know. And he had, he was buying them every day and 
eventually, you know, his, his wife was noticing, gee, uh, our electricity got shut off, and uh, why is that? And he was um, just always certain he was going to win at least a million, if not $10 million. And uh, it, he ended up in treatment for scratchers. And so that may seem strange to me. And I've been in treatment with sports gamblers. I don't know how that works, but obviously another place that it's very addicting. So um, so it sounds like you've been through recovery and met plenty of people. Is there anything special you do now that you're out of recovery to keep yourself sober? Is that the correct yes. terminology? Do we call gambler sober or is there another, do you use a different word? I use sobriety a lot of times. So, I know in Louisiana they call it being off the bet. Okay. Um, now that you're maintaining your sobriety then. Um, right. Um, I This time I did things differently. I love Tahlequah. I mean, it's beautiful. It has a river. It has a lake. And I actually, it is starting to get some gambling resources, um, but they weren't in place when I was there. So I didn't have support when I would go back home. I, I had no meetings. I was trying to go to AA meetings, and they were nice enough to let me come in and join them. But it wasn't really the same. So this, uh, this last time out of treatment, I moved to Tulsa, which has GA meetings. Um, when I moved here every day and then COVID hit, and now we're about five days a week, but there's still quite a few meetings here. So there's a good support system here. And then I started looking for other resources as well. And Finding your group was one of those resources. Um, also, Broke Girl Society is um, a gr- group started by a woman here in Tulsa that <laughs> is a, a gambling group just for women. Sounds and, to like a sense of good sense of humor. It, oh, she does. She has a great sense of humor, and she's very serious about you know recovery. And um, so, so there's several women in here in Tulsa and it's nice every now and then to have a women's meeting because um, GA and AA and all of that is is very much written in a, with a patriarchal uh, focus and women may have a few issues to deal with that are a little bit different or feelings that are different sometimes it's nice to just be in a woman's group so i've looked and i found that and now i go two times a week to white bison white bison started in colorado and it is an addiction program for native americans i uh you know it is having everyone together regardless of the addiction However, it's looking at recovery from the idea of the medicine wheel, looking at um, the teachings of ancestries, I'm sorry, of ancestors from your ancestry, if I can talk, Uh, 
like last night, you know, the reading had, you know, it came from a native elder. So there's readings just like there are for, you know, AA and AGA. You smudge, which means that, you know, you start the meeting with either cedar, sage, or sweet grass, and you're just, you're cleansing yourself with the, with the smoke. And you are then, you know, um, talking through things, not just your addiction, but like last night it had to do with elders. And so we were all talking about what we had learned from elders and what we still can learn, even if they have passed. And then third, as we move towards being elders, you know, what can we be doing um, to be, you know, role models for, for the next generation of Native youth? So last night was a good meeting. So I started just looking for resources because what I found is if I'm on my own, it, it doesn't work. I know that there's no ifs, ands, and buts about that. I cannot do this by myself. Now, I don't necessarily go to meetings and do a lot of the God stuff, um, which is probably why I did start looking for some other areas. Um, I do go to church, uh, but I don't look for that in my GA program. Um, my higher power at this point in time um, is, is my ancestors. That's who I am praying to. For a long time, it was just a group. I did know I needed other people. And well, then I, I'll go ahead. Oh, I was Sorry. just going to say, our, our 12 steps, that's one of the things I hope you like, is that we don't use God or higher power. It's more about tapping into a reservoir of inner strength and courage that a lot of people don't know is there. Um, because you can also use it with God as well. So it's for both people, our 12 steps, because... If you're going to use ours, even though it doesn't mention the word God or higher power, God gave you free will, he gave you intelligence, he gave you strength, so use that to help yourself. You know what I mean? So you can still use God if you want to. But for the people that, like you, don't want to, you can use it without. And it makes it, I think, a little bit more digestible. I agree. And, and I like the 12 steps that you have put together. Um, my only... One thing is in my head, I add, you know, that um, community, because for me, I have really found that, that I just need the community. Um, but I, I like them very, very much. And I'm probably a little more hypervigilant about the God issue. My son is gay and Yes, long time ago, he gave me the permission to say that to anyone. So people out there, don't get mad at me. <laughs> um, you know, um, and for me, there is absolutely nothing wrong with my son, uh, you know, being gay. But I have been in groups where there have been people that are very God-focused that do believe my son is going to hell for his, for being homosexual. And so when it, I don't mind people if until it gets really, 
very like overzealous, then I start to wonder, is this person somebody that would not approve of my son? And being a mom, I'm like, okay. You know, like I perk up and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm a little worried about you. Do you think my son's going to hell? You know? Yeah. So I think that's one reason why for me, for with GA, I haven't really looked as much there for a God focus. If I want God, I'll go to church. You know, uh, yeah. and I go to a church that has gay ministers, gay priests. So, you know, I, I'm not going to have to worry about that there. Yeah, that's great. That is great. Absolutely. Um, so that's great. The only, that, no, you oh, go. The other thing, I'm sorry. Um, I'll finish my thought. The only other thing I have also added is I've gone back to the sweat lodge ceremony um, once a month on the new moon. We meet and we go into the sweat lodge and as addicts and pray for recovery and give thanks and also cleanse ourselves with a new fresh beginning of starting again. And um, it, to me, it's a very, very powerful place. Very powerful. And that has helped me a lot, too. So I'm sorry. I was just, I just uh, was going to end my thought. Oh, no. Of course. Um, and that probably is very relaxing. Because it's kind of like I would assume it's similar to a sauna? <clears throat> um, well, if you want to say sauna times a hundred. Oh, okay. So it's real. Yeah. Real you, if you go, like it's supposed to be like 95 degrees here a day. Um, if you go into a sweat lodge, if you came out, this would feel wonderful. It would be, it would be <laughs> so cool, like coming out to 95 gotcha. degrees. Um, I'm so, so glad that you're sober. Definitely. Um, you are, and you do get uncomfortable and that's okay. That's, you know, um, no pain, no gain. Right. So I appreciate you being on the podcast. That was a really, really great story. You told it very well. <clears throat> and I guess that's it. So anything else you want to add? The only thing that I would add is if someone is dealing with gambling addiction, I would hope they would reach out. Um, there's a, you know, an 800 number as well as every state I believe has um, problem in compulsive gambling. And a lot more counselors are being trained in it than there used to be. I would hope they'd go to a GA meeting with one word of caution, there will be something in that first meeting that you will hear that you won't like. Come back anyway. Come back anyway. That's great advice because I know exactly how I felt sometimes when I started attending meetings, and that's great advice. Yeah. So I appreciate you doing this and all the time that you put into this. Um, you're doing a lot of good, and, and I'm glad that you are, you know, 
making more resources for people out there. That's that's a great thing to do. And for people, there is our website. Oh, it's under construction right now, but eventually we're going to have a bunch of resources for gamblers, um, for all, all types of addictions, but we will include gamblers in there. Um, you know, like the meeting finders and any resources I happen to find that I think would be helpful, I'm going to make links to on addict. <clears throat> on addicts-anonymous.com. So again, thank you, Rachel, so much for sharing your story. It's much appreciated. And if you guys like us, please give me a like on iTunes. We're available on Spotify and a number of other different platforms, so come check us out. We've got more episodes. Also, check out our Facebook group. We give away free sobriety chips and free wristlets or bracelets, I think you should call them, for the cause. And uh, that's about it. Till next time.